We continue this morning in our reading through the book of Acts. In a slightly smaller focus, we continue this morning in our reading through the Apostle Paul's sermon in the synagogue located in Antioch, Pisidia. We got started on the Apostle's sermon last week. Our message then was titled, The Politics of the Kingdom. We continue in the second section of this sermon at verse 26 through 39. And I will let you know ahead of time that this morning's message, though titled The Kingdom of Forgiveness, it's really a sermon, a message about preaching. And why does the kingdom of forgiveness advance through preaching and not through a sword? We are going to be in this sermon again in the next time I preach here, and we will give closer attention to Paul's use of the Old Testament scriptures to identify the Lord Jesus Christ. But this morning, we will give our attention to Paul's very clear self-awareness that what he is doing is preaching, and that's what he must be doing. Let us pray and then read. Our most gracious God, we are now to hear your word publicly read and preached. We stand on the foundation of the apostles in doing so. It is the Apostle Paul, the Apostle of Christ, who said, preach the word, who urged Timothy to give care to the public reading of Scripture. So would we do, Lord, with every confidence that it is your will that we do, for there is a blessing in it. So, Father, we do ask. We ask by faith in your Son, in the confidence and privilege of your spirit, that you would help us, help our, our wives and our husbands, our boys and our girls, help the young and the old, help everyone from pulpit to pew to receive your word. And Lord, we pray that having received it, we would feed on it, we would be nourished by it, we would take responsibility for having heard it, that we would apply it, And that we, O Lord, would run in the way of your commandments to the praise of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts 13, verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us 
their children. By raising Jesus as also, it is written in the second psalm, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy ones see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. This is God's word. If the kingdom of Jesus Christ is a kingdom of earthly power, then those who are without power, those far from power, they are shut out of his kingdom. If the kingdom of Jesus Christ is a kingdom of earthly prosperity, then those without a certain amount of riches are shut out of his kingdom. If the kingdom of Jesus Christ is a kingdom of earthly liberation, a kingdom for workers, not owners, then those who don't need social liberation, the ruling class, they are shut out of his kingdom. If the kingdom of Jesus Christ is a kingdom of earthly wisdom, a kingdom for the credentialed, the cultured, the sophisticated, well, then the unlearned and the ignorant are shut out of his kingdom. If the kingdom of Jesus Christ is a kingdom of earthly decency, a kingdom for those who talk right, eat right, dress right, look right, then those who offend us are shut out of his kingdom. But the good news of the prophets, the good news of the apostles of God, the good news of the king himself is that the kingdom of Jesus Christ is none of these. It is rather a kingdom of forgiveness And because it is a kingdom of forgiveness, everyone who knows themselves to be condemned by God's law, everyone who knows themselves to be a sinner before God, everyone who knows themselves to be dead in trespasses, all such people are ripe and ready to enter the forever kingdom of Jesus Christ, his kingdom of forgiveness. But there is no time for complacency. There is no time to keep sitting around ripe and keep sitting around ready. There is no time for lingering. We must enter now because a kingdom of forgiveness, beloved, is still a kingdom. Christ is its king and the king has come to receive his full and his free and his always fresh forgiveness is to come under his rule, to believe on him and then to love him, and then to long for him, to desire his return. He forgives us to bring us into just such a fellowship. But he accepts no rivals. Please understand. 
He will not deal lightly with those who resist him. There will be no place to hide. All souls will answer to him, this king. The powerful and the oppressed, the rich and the poor, the educated and the ignorant, the decent and the indecent, all will give an account of their sins to Jesus. The king is already on his throne. That's what time it is. Through death on a cross, through a glorious resurrection, Jesus Christ has ascended to the right hand of God. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. All must present themselves to him, and they will either come standing in his forgiveness or standing in their own works. There will be no third way to stand before him. So complacency is shattered. All must answer to the king. But here is the good news. The day of his vengeance has not come yet upon the world. Today we are still in the day of his salvation. And because his kingdom is a kingdom of forgiveness... It does not yet advance by the sword of coercion. Now that sword will be drawn by the king himself. He will ride his steed over the earth. He will be up to his hips in blood of his enemies. But that is not this day. He is not yet here with his sword of coercion. His kingdom today advances by a word of good news. And this, beloved, is what Paul is doing in Acts 13. He is preaching in a Jewish synagogue in Antioch, Pisidia. The Apostle Paul advances the kingdom of Jesus Christ. The only way the kingdom of forgiveness can be advanced by preaching preaching that the person and the work of Jesus Christ is the only foundation of God's free offer of forgiveness to all who believe on the Son. And notice that while Paul preaches, he speaks three times about his duty to preach. Three times he references his duty to preach the generosity of God in Christ. Any other kind of preaching is not Christian. Listen to Paul. At the end of verse 26, he speaks of the message of this salvation. In verse 32, he says, We bring you the good news. Uwan Galidzo, the preaching of good news. Then at the end of verse 38, he says, Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. The message, the good news, the proclamation. Three different ways to describe one thing, gospel preaching. Paul is telling us that the kingdom of forgiveness advances by an open and public proclamation of the gospel. It is the king's preference to advance his kingdom this way. And Paul is in the middle of doing it in a public sermon in a synagogue in Antioch, Pisidia. 
In another place, Paul says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the foolishness of preaching to save them who believe. 1 Corinthians 1.21 Where did Paul learn that preaching was the king's choice method of advancing the kingdom of forgiveness? Well, he learned it from the king himself. Jesus said in Luke 24.46, when he appeared to his disciples after his resurrection, these words, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. That's the Lucan Great Commission. You know Matthew's in 28 of his gospel. This is Luke's. The kingdom of forgiveness advances by public proclamation, preaching, which means it does not ordinarily advance in secret. Let's hear that carefully. If it advances by preaching at the will of the king, it does not ordinarily advance in secret. It does not ordinarily advance under obscure, hidden providences. It does not ordinarily advance by traumatic weather events or traumatic social upheaval. It does not ordinarily advance in bookstores. It does not ordinarily advance through Christian trinkets. And it certainly does not advance by an army of avenging angels. That day will come. But today is the day of salvation in the kingdom of forgiveness, which means Christ has sent forth men who have low standing in society, somewhere below hobbits, to publicly confront the consciences of other men with both the king's authority and the king's generosity. And you would say, that's foolish. That's going to advance no kingdom. Well, that's the exact context of humility in which the humiliated king wants his name to be received by those who will serve him in humility. The high and holy king, even though he is now seated in triumph on his throne, he is in a special session right now. A special session where he is not counting men's trespasses against them, but is forgiving their trespasses at their own expense. I don't know if we really realize how special a session the enthroned Christ is in right now. Not counting those who live off his land and drink in his sun and gobble up his fat food, not counting against them their trespasses. His riches will be theirs if they repent and believe on him. It is a special dispensation that may close any day that he pleases to close it. And while it remains open, the king himself is the only one who grants repentance and faith. 
and his preferences to ordinarily grant repentance and faith when his generosity is being proclaimed by his preaching servants. Which raises a very important question for us today. Here is Paul in Acts 13, advancing the kingdom of forgiveness through preaching. The question for us is, what do we want our churches to be talking about? What do we want our preachers to be talking about? What do we want our Christian brothers and sisters to be talking about to us? Do we want them all to only and always be talking about the judgment people outside of Christ deserve? Dr. Edmund Clowney once said, Jesus did not come first to inflict the judgment, but to bear it. Which means for now, his kingdom of forgiveness advances as his church declares the sign of his humiliation, the cross, where he died for our sins and declares the sign of his exaltation, the resurrection, where he was raised for our justification. And having then declared those historic events, we declare the season of the king's free and full forgiveness to all who repent and believe. This is the exact pattern that Paul is following in Antioch, Pisidia. He first tells of the sufferings and the humiliations of the Messiah. That's verses 27 through 29 in our text. He then declares Christ's resurrection and exaltation to the throne of God. That's verses 30 through 37. And then in verses 38 through 39, Paul proclaims a free and full offer of forgiveness for all who repent that their sins will be forgiven them should they believe on Christ. Beloved, that's the exact pattern of our Lord Jesus' own words in the Lucan Great Commission. Suffering, resurrection, forgiveness. So back to our question. What do we want our churches to be talking about? Do we want them talking a lot about Jesus, but hardly ever talking about his humiliation and his exaltation? In my judgment, one of the most common ways Jesus is spoken of today by Christians in the West and by their preachers, they had to learn it somewhere, right? The most common way Jesus is spoken of today in the West is the great one who does neat things for you. I wish I could come up with a good acronym for that. The great one who does neat things for you. Did you get a raise? Jesus did that for you. Did you get a parking spot close to the front entry of the store? Jesus did that for you. Did you have an amazing vacation? Jesus did that for you. The common Christian method of evangelism today is to summon people into Christ's kingdom by telling them how much Jesus helps them get earthly things a little better than they could get them on their own. And the humiliation of Christ and the exaltation of Christ is far from view. The great error and danger of this, of course, is the church ends up training people to hear about Jesus 
the exact way they want to hear about him. As someone who already approves of all the earthly things they desire, but he has more power to make those things happen. If you are not familiar with it, I encourage you to look up Moral Therapeutic Deism, a massive study done by Christian Smith that has reams of data to show that the Western church has reduced God to a moralistic, therapeutic, deistic God who simply comforts us with the things that we have already decided that will comfort us. Paul shows us a better way. As he has learned from the Lord in Luke 24, even though he wasn't in the room, of course, he wasn't even converted yet, of course. But Paul shows us a better way here in Acts 13 that people must hear about the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ. And only then, on that foundation, can they be offered forgiveness. So back to our question again. What do we want our churches to be talking about? Well, maybe we don't want our churches talking much at all. Maybe we just want our churches to perform, to entertain, to emote. A couple years ago, I received a phone call from a promotion specialist. His identification, not mine. The gentleman was promoting a team of Christian powerlifters, men who can lift great loads of weight with their great muscles, the kind of men who belong in the Olympics. The caller was offering to bring these powerlifters to Apple Valley Presbyterian Church. And here I am. He was offering to have them come and perform so we could make a greater impact on our neighborhood. Now, what that caller was really offering to churches was power and wisdom. But worldly power and worldly wisdom. Of course, he did not see it that way, and I'm sure he had good intentions. But there's a road paved by good intentions. Do you know it? I'm sure the men who would have come would have even said something about Jesus and about a sinner's need for a savior. But let me tell you, what would have been remembered would be their performance, their strength, their celebrity, their muscles. The spectacle is what would have been remembered. And this kind of showmanship and entertainment is what some Christians think the church needs more of. They see this kind of stuff as powerful. Why? Because it can draw a crowd. That's a power. They see this kind of stuff as wise. Why? Because it uses strategies that the modern world uses to get people's attention. It is an attempt to make Christ more appealing by using techniques the world already approves of. They don't approve of the cross of Christ, so let's package the cross within something they do approve. We must always remember what this very same apostle, Paul, said to the Corinthian church. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach 
Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. (coughs) Which then brings us this morning to the kingdom of forgiveness and its glorious offer. The divine person and the humiliating work of Jesus Christ must always be present if we are going to make a competent offer of forgiveness. Why? Because, beloved, the the human heart is deceitfully wicked. It sounds like good news to run around and tell people their sins can be forgiven, their sins can be forgiven. But forgiveness without the person and work of Christ is a forgiveness that will not result in obedience. It will not result in joy. And it will not bring glory to anyone but the man who lives in his deception. That he's forgiven his sins without regard to the Savior. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, Paul says, that through this man... Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. What man? The man whom God Almighty raised up many prophets to speak of from the very beginning of time. The man the prophet said was coming from heaven as Messiah. That man. What man gives forgiveness of sins? The man who submitted himself without regret to the cruelty and violence and bloodthirst of lawless men and did so without speaking reviling words to them and so fulfilled all the plans and promises of God for sinners. What man? The man who was without guilt but was executed, hung on the tree of cursedness where he became a curse for us and then was buried in a tomb in the earth. What man? The man whom God raised from the dead. What man, Paul? The man whom God said something he would, the man to whom God said something he would not even say to his angels. This is spoken of in Hebrews chapter 1. He didn't say to any angels, that apostle says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. He only says that to the eternal son. And what man is this? The man who rose from death to David's throne in David's flesh and was awarded all the sure blessings promised to the offspring of David. The man who is God, who though dead, his flesh did not see corruption, nor shall it ever see corruption. And he now shares such life with us freely and fully in forgiveness of our sins. Now, lastly, I want you to be careful with verse 39. Paul is not saying in verse 39, the law frees you from some things, 
and Christ frees you from the rest. Please don't misread that. Even scholars have misread it and said Paul is contradicting himself here with things he said in Galatians. Some have thought Paul's meaning is this. Though the law justifies from many things, it cannot justify from all things, but Christ makes up all deficiencies. His true meaning is this. By Christ, the believer is justified from all things, whereas the law justifies from no thing, otherwise known as nothing. The law never promised a freedom from sin's debts. The law brings one thing to the unjustified, condemnation. But look what the Lord gives. Through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Not just proclaimed, but offered for you to take. As surely as you would take bread and wine. Take this forgiveness because it frees you from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beloved, the law leaves us bound, not free. The law condemns, it does not liberate. But Jesus Christ, who has been crucified and raised, he forgives all your sins, even that one. Even that one that Satan knows how to hang around your neck even 25 years after you fell into it. Even that sin that you would call Voldemort, the sin which shall not be mentioned, it is forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. Even your sins in this worship service, your inattentiveness to the word of Christ, your half-heartedness in his praise and glory, your worship sins are even forgiven today by the blood of Christ. Even the preacher's sins in this preaching service, the sins that you think are nothing but which are enough to carry you to hell, even those are forgiven, though you are still not fully aware of how great they are. And he wants you to hear this because there will be nothing else that will liberate your soul from a stingy spirit to think that there are some things that Jesus just hasn't yet forgiven. You will not run in the way of Christ while you think there are some shameful sins that are, net, yet, that are still on the books. All has been forgiven. <coughs> Such is the perfect detergent of his blood. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we come before you this morning. We thank you that you have raised up the Apostle Paul to show the church the glory of the foolishness of preaching. It is glory, its glory is in whom it speaks of, the man, the God, the Son of Lord, we thank you for your Son. Though eternally generated from your side, born in time of the Virgin, born of a woman under the law, 
to carry upon his shoulders all the duties that belonged to the very creatures he created in his image, to meet every demand of the law in obedience and righteousness without sin, and bear all the penalties in his humiliation to the cross. And you raised him up on the third day, testifying to us who he is, the son who could not see corruption, the sinless servant. Lord, we thank you that you've seated him at your right hand, testifying to that which was always his, deity. Oh, Lord, we thank you and praise you that on this foundation, this cornerstone, our sins are forgiven. Not because we want them forgiven, not because we find it a pleasant idea, but because it is the very structure and foundation of the new creation. Father, forgive us for all the ways that we have wanted the church to speak of other things than the kingdom of forgiveness. And grant us, O Lord, much grace to sanctify our own speech, especially when we speak in Jesus' name, especially when we multiply words. May we have the grace to sift them and find the weight of them to be of the forgiveness of Jesus Christ to sinners through his humiliation and exaltation. And Father, as we come to the table now, bless us there. In Jesus' name, amen.